Looking back in time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland program at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media. Good evening, you're very welcome along to the History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and thanks for joining me on this Halloween week to a somewhat spooky themed edition of the programme. Coming up on this evening's show. The owner of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours, Sharon Kavanagh, gives us an insight into some of the most historic and spooky tales from across the county. In the first of two parts tonight, Sharon will be telling us about the Lady in White who haunts Kilkenny Castle and also about the priest who famously, supposedly, haunts Roth House. Local historian and chairperson of Guardian on Goethe Famine Memorial Garden, Willie Barron tells us about the 1920 IRA siege of Hugginstown RIC barracks, which marked the third successful attack on such a barracks of the War of Independence. What was the background leading up to the attack? Who was affected? And what consequences ensued for those involved in the aftermath? Willie will be along to let us more know more about that a little bit later in the programme. And finally, in part two of our spooky chat with Sharon Kavanagh, we'll learn more about the Kittler witch trial and how it came to pass that the first witch burning in all of Europe took place right here in our very own native Kilkenny. So all of that, plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour, I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.ie sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083 306 9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. Our webpage and podcast for season two of the programme is up and running. You can access it at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show. So you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app. And this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. But first tonight, we're chatting to a Kilkenny native who has a keen interest in both our local and national history, but also the history and significance of the paranormal world. Sharon Kavanagh is the owner of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours, a group which offers walking tours of some of Kilkenny's most famous paranormal hotspots, offering haunted tales and histories along the way. The tours take place mostly on a nightly basis, and later in the programme, Sharon will be telling us more about those haunted dark tours and how you can get involved. But in this, the first of two parts tonight, Sharon is going to recount two well-known haunted tales from the county. The Lady in White who haunts Kilkenny Castle and the Priest who haunts Roth House. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. So in the first of our Kilkenny Haunted Histories tonight, Sharon, we're going to talk about the grandmother of Anne Boleyn, a name very familiar to people from County Kilkenny and beyond, and that is Lady Margaret Butler, or the Lady in White as she's known. She's said to haunt Kilkenny Castle. Well, Lady Margaret Butler has always been um, someone, you know, who's quite famous as a spirit more so uh, within Kilkenny. Um, I've been from Kilkenny. I remember growing up as a young child, hearing about this lady in white. I often remember my grandfather telling me, you know, if you go there in there in the late afternoon, you'll see her pruning her roses. Lady Margaret was born in the castle in the 1400s. She married Sir William Boleyn. She also was a great gardener and loved gardens, and she particularly loved Kilkenny Castle. 
It is said that she can often be seen in the building of the castle and more often in the Rose Garden. Locals tell stories of the castle and the White Lady roaming around by the riverbanks. She also wanders the corridors and staircases and may have been inadvertently photographed as recently by two teenagers holidaying in Kilkenny at the time. She was an Irish noblewoman, the daughter and co-heiress of Thomas Butler, the seventh Earl of Ormond, born at Kilkenny Castle. Her cousin, Piers Butler, who had physically control of the Irish estates and the backing of the Irish Council, claimed to be the heir through direct male line. Eventually, through her granddaughter's position as Queen Consort, the King granted her a pardon from the alienation of Fritwell Manor in Oxfordshire, one of her favourite manors. From around 1519 onwards, she was declared by Inquisition to have suffered periods of insanity, making her incapable of managing her own estates. Lady Margaret Butler was very much loved and always respected, and her ever presence in the castle, if it be in spirit or memory, it still keeps her story alive today. So the ghost story of Lady Margaret Butler is probably one of my most favourite stories in the city. Um, she was a very interesting character and you often think of her life in Kilkenny and you don't really connect her to actually being the grandmother of the famous Anne Boleyn, the second wife of King Henry VIII. And if you look into the story of Anne Boleyn and King Henry VIII, you will often see documentaries and read books from past and present of people actually talking about um, Anne Boleyn family coming from nothing. And that always puts a question mark in my mind because if you look at the castle, well, if your grandparents lived in that castle, they certainly wouldn't be coming from nothing. And this was political propaganda at the time because King Henry VIII has often been depicted as a very, very crazy king, which couldn't be further from the truth. He was quite a clever king, if you think about it. He was the King of England who finally broke away from the control of the Pope. Now that's kind of confusing, I know, but Think about it, the Pope ruled everything back then. If King Henry VIII wanted to war in France or anywhere, he had to ask permission from the Pope. Basically, in a nutshell, he probably had to convince his Christians that were living on his land, i.e. his land, his people, because they were Christians and more answerable they felt to the Pope in Rome. So he decided he was gonna break away and he was gonna control his own land that he occupied. Um, by doing that, he used his personal life and his marriage to Anne Boleyn and to his other wives as pub-like trash to gain popularity and to, to gain sympathy from his own people and um, the public. And in doing so, it propelled him to an, and enabled him to break away from the Pope. And then he, can, he, he, he gained control solely. And this most certainly did not mean he was a crazy king. It meant he was a very, very clever king, whether you like him or not, or whether you agree with his politics or not. And it's a very interesting story that has stayed alive. Um, and Lady Margaret Butler, the lady of our castle in Kilkenny, was the grandmother of his wife and the great-grandmother of the future daughter of King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, Queen Elizabeth, who became the Queen of England. Next up in our Kilkenny Haunted Histories, we're going to talk about the priest who is said to haunt Roth House. Can you tell us more about him? 
Roth House is set on Parliament Street at the end of the High Street in Kilkenny City, straight across the road from our now courthouse. Um, the courthouse itself would have been called Grace's Castle and was lived in by the Grace's family. And Roth House across the road, which is haunted by the priests, was lived in by the Roth's family. It's a beautiful 1600 style merchant house set on a Burgess plot. It is said, however, that if you look up at the second floor in the middle window of Roth House, that you may just see the ghostly image of a priest who used to pray for condemned souls in hiding or who were jailed in the jail across the road in the now courthouse. At this time, um, Catholic priests were being executed and um, with prayers and mass being forbidden for many people. And many people feared being unblessed before they died. People were held in jail by merely breaking basic rights or rules, um, which were called the penal laws. The priest would make himself apparent on the oriel window on the second floor of Roth House, so as to offer comfort to the poor souls jailed. He would have risked his own life too in doing so, and he still guards the area at night. That jail at the time was occupied by soldiers of Cromwell. Cromwell had taken over the city in 1650, and he left behind him a man called Daniel Axel, who resided in Kilkenny for about five years. It has been said that before Axel met his end by King Charles II at the gallows in London, he admitted that the atrocities he committed in Kilkenny would haunt him into his afterlife. The background to the, the priest in Roth House is quite interesting. In a time when people weren't allowed to speak their mind, and they certainly weren't allowed to read or write anything political or untoward against the ruling, the ruling people that were in Kilkenny at the time, i.e. Cromwellian soldiers, um, people learned to adapt to their surroundings. And in doing so, they developed an oral language, an oral tradition. And the Irish are quite famous for their oral tradition as they suffered many atrocities throughout the centuries. This, they've kept their culture um, and they've kept their stories and their history through a lot of oral tradition. The story of the, the ghost in Roth House is quite interesting for me because in a way it has kept the actual atrocities that were happening here in Kilkenny at the time. If you try and delve deeper into it in, in a written documentation scale, um, there is quite a lot of stories but nothing too in-depth especially Daniel Axel, um, there's not too much about the atrocities in detail that he committed. We rely heavily on Cromwellian letters that were written by Cromwell himself. Um, and Cromwell was not ashamed in any way of the atrocities he committed in order to, to happen within Ireland. The story of the priest is quite, it's not a story, it's true. Catholic priests during the rule of Cromwell in the 1650s were particularly banished. There was no priests allowed in Ireland at the time, Catholic priests. And for this priest to be coming up into Roth House, which was partially empty at the time, would have been quite believable as they would have been smuggled in. They would have been hiding and they would have been risking their own lives. Um, when the Irish knew that there was any kind of punishments or anything going on untoward within the city, they would bring in a priest in through the walls of the city when we had walls, where the Kilkenny city was actually walled at the time. They would smuggle them in, both taking a risk to their lives if they were caught. And the story goes that the priest would come up into that oriel window in Roth House and offer the sign of the cross out to anyone entering the jail or being killed or been punished in this area. It's quite an interesting story because it delves into the life that people had 
back then in the 1650s. And to this day, the reminder of the ghost in Roth House tells us and brings on that story to the next generation of how things were back in the 1650s in Kilkenny and in Ireland at the time. A big thank you to Sharon Kavanagh from Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours there for recounting two of the most well-known spooky tales from Kilkenny's past. Sharon will be back a little bit later on in the programme to tell us more about her work, about how you can join in on one of Kilkenny's Haunted Dark Tours and about the Kittler Witch Trail, which saw Kilkenny becoming the home to Europe's very first witch burning. But that's it for part one of the programme. I do hope you'll stay tuned and join me again in part two, where I'll be speaking to local historian and chairperson of Gardaí on Goethe Famine Memorial Garden, Willie Byrne, about the 1920 IRA siege of Huggenstown RIC barracks. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. Looking back in time, the history show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltoch, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part two of tonight's KCLR History Show. The village of Hugginstown in South Kilkenny holds a significant place in the county's history due to a pivotal event during the War of Independence. The 1st and 7th Battalions of the old IRA laid siege to the RAC barracks there, marking the third successful RAC barracks attack of the war. The event led to a number of long-lasting consequences for all those involved and for the people of Hugginstown. And to tell us more about it and about the lead-up to the event taking place, I spoke to local historian and chairperson of Gardine and Goethe Famine Memorial Garden, Willie Barron, as he set the scene for one of the most crucial moments in the War of Independence in South Kilkenny. Wednesday nights from 6, this is KCLR's History Show. After 1916, after the rising, when it didn't work out for the Irish people, Sinn Féin groups were um, were formed again and organised in County Kilkenny and all over Ireland. And um, Irish volunteer companies were organised and in South Kilkenny, including Hogestown. Father Delahunty, the famous priest from Callan, and Father Henneberry and Pat Wilson from Dunamagan, who died in Knocknagrace, were the most prominent people associated with organising this work. They they usually, for, for Hogginstown now, <clears throat> they met under the guise of a, a football, in a football field, and it was organised there to give messages around. The first officers of the Hogginstown Company were William Farrell, Captain, Thomas Byrne, First Lieutenant, and Nicholas Carroll, Second Lieutenant, and they were part of the 7th Callan Battalion. James Rowan of Arnold Callan was elected the battalion commandant. Hogginstown RIC barracks attack was carried out on Monday night at 11.30pm on March 8, 1920. Thomas Nolan from Kilkenny brought out the bombs and they were stored in Halloran's Haggard in Hogginstown village. Tom Tracy was OC in charge of this attack and other senior officers present were James Lawler, Kilkenny City, Leo Darsus, Kilkenny, Jim Rowan and Pat Welch of Dunamagan. Joe McMahon from County Clare was also present and he was in charge of the bombing party. 36 men took part in the Hogestown barrack attack from various companies in the battalion areas. 
there was a sergeant and five constables in the RIC barracks that night. Constable Ryan was fatally wounded that night. And unfortunately, he died and he was buried in Balbrickan Cemetery in Washford. The British military arrested about 20 local men after the attack and they were first taken to Kikini Barrack, military barracks, and then on to Cork Prison, and then on to Belfast Prison by boat, and finally on to Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London. And they went on hunger strike from for 15 to 21 days, and they were released on May the 10th, 1920. In October 1920, the 8th Battalion was formed, as the 7th Battalion was too large. I just go back on that, um, when, when they were meeting to attack Hogeston Barracks, all of the, the, the men that was um, called to action that night, they met in the Battle Boreen, where the famous Battle of Carrichock took place in 1831. And that's where they all assembled and, and quietly made their way up to the barracks in Hogeston. The idea of that, that, that barracks attack was um, really to, to um, just isolate the, the military not to have them I have they, they, they see Marie really the eyes and ears of the British military in the villages so the order came from Dublin to to, um, to destroy these barracks and Hogestown RIC barracks was the third in Ireland to be um, captured and um, cleared of RIC men lots of others were, were attacked but were not cleared on the night so when that barracks was it was um, um, attacked that night and the RIC had to vacate it. A week later, the local the local IRA, the Hogeston area came and knocked that barracks to the ground, where it could never be um, vacated again. And um, that that's, that's really happened all over Ireland after that. There are the barracks in the countryside, so the military had only the, the, the big towns and cities to, um, to, to stay in. And they had no local information after that. So really after Hogeston, <clears throat> when they were captured then, um, as I said, that they were sent to Wormwood Scrubs and released in May 1920. And then, uh, really, in in, um, in August 1920, the auxiliaries came to Woodstock House over there in the Steeg, and they they started raiding into the area. And like they they had they had a terrible reputation for um, brutality and harassing the local people. So they they would have come into Hogestown Village back there in October of 1920 and. They were actually looking for um, Josie Halloran, one of the men that took part in the barracks attack in Hogginstone. And they actually shot, they shot one of their own men in the street, firing at, trying to get at, at, um, at Joseph Halloran. And Lieutenant Skinner, he was shot in the village. And who was also there that night was um, Major Harry Briggs. And he, he, he was in, on those raiding parties in Hogginstone. And the interesting thing about him is he was transferred to Newport, Tipperary, in January or February of 1921. He was assassinated in, at the Cool Bean ambush on the 14th of May 1920 by Paddy Ryan Lackham, because this, this Harry Biggs was notorious for torturing the people and harassing the people over Newport and Tipperary. And Paddy Ryan Lackham would have been one of the more famous IRA men in that area. And this Harry Biggs would have... Um, captured his father and put him up on the RIC tenders and brought him around on raids the way that they tied him to the top of the Crosley tender so that could not be shot. So Paddy um, Lack and Ryan made sure that he was going to be gotten so they finally assassinated him at that ambush in 
cool breeze. Another thing that he done over there is outside the church on Sundays, at gunpoint, they surround the church in, up there in Newport. And when the people coming out from Mass, they just um, made them all sing God Save the King at gunpoint. So he was a marked man. But to get back to Hugginstown uh, on about some of the people that was involved in that, the, Joe McMahon now. Joe McMahon was from Kilmaine County Clare and he was intimately connected to, to really boost the war effort, get the, get the lads active to do more. And, and he was an expert in bomb making. After Joe coming to Kilkenny then, he, he, he was involved in the Hogestown attack and he was a marked man. So Joe had to leave Kilkenny then and go. He was sent by, um, by Michael Collins from Dublin down to County Wexford. And his job was to assassinate D.I. Lee Wilson in Gorey. This D.I. Lee Wilson was another of these people who really treated people. And Frank Thornton and Liam Tobe and Michael Collins' men were also sent down to Gorey to, to take care of this man because <coughs> Liam Tobin was, was in Dublin after the surrender of 1916 and you see how this Lee Wilson had ill-treated Tom Clark and other Irish volunteers after the surrender of 1916. Like Tom Clark was an old man at that stage even for 1916 and this bloke humiliated him. He was leaning on a walking stick and he just knocked the stick away from him and, and let Tom Clark fall on the ground. And they actually, I think, a report that they actually stripped Tom Clark naked and, and, and there. So these boys said, this man is a marked man. And so they finally got Lee Wilson in Gory on the 15th of June, 1920. And Frank Tarrant and Liam and and um, Joe McMahon were involved in that. So Joe was still a marked man. So Joe actually had to get out of Wexford then. Joe went up to County Cavan then to boost the war effort. He was up there and he, he was showing the the lads how to make the bombs and when he was examining a bomb it actually blew up and killed Joe on the 15th of August 1920. So Joe is buried in Kilmaley graveyard in County Clare. In 1920 we move on to then after the, the British military are really um, raiding into the area and especially from, from Woodstock House. In 1921 yes a bomb exploded in a bridge in Ballyhale and one of the, the auxiliaries lorries drove into it and, and a few of those been involved and that got, got injured and one of them was Harry Biggs and there was a court case even the Kilkenny paper of those times of that court case. After that attack in um, Ballahale they raided for people and Tom Barnes in the Newmarket village was in the shop here in the local village. The woman of, of the lady that was in the shop told him that the military are coming up the road so he ran out the back door of the shop down the field at the back of the village here and um, of course, the military are waiting for him because he was a marked man after Huggleston, after the attack in Ballyhale. And they captured him. They actually fired a Lewis machine gun at him and, and blew the wall from under him. He was lucky he wasn't killed that day. So he was captured along with another man, Orion from Ballyhale. And they were they were thrown up in the Crosley tender and they were tied at the top of it again as hostages. And, and the auxiliaries and black and tans went around all the local villages drinking and the boys still in the lorry, the way they couldn't be attacked by the IRA or they killed their own men first. And then they were eventually brought back to Woodstock, this infamous place that, um, that was renowned for torture. So they were thrown down in the cells in Woodstock. They were, what the, what the auxiliaries done, as told by the people of the time to the present day people, that um, they cut their heels with a, with a knife, the auxiliaries did, put them down in the cell and put salt on the floors of the cell. So that was the torture, that walk on salt with their heels cut. 
And then what they done, that wasn't enough, but they, they put a bag of potatoes down in the cell, rotten potatoes, and it wasn't to feed the, the prisoners, it was for the rats to come into the cells. So one of the prisoners every night had to stay away killing the rats, or the rats would attack the prisoners. So there, that was the torture that went on over there. And then when they when they, they weren't finished at that with the torture, they, they, they actually, the auxiliaries, they had a, a terrible name. They were down to the, in the sea village and every night drinking and they come back up, they'd urinate down on top of the prisoners down at the cells in Woodstock House. After that then, those men were sent off to Waterford Barracks, Balbrickham Prison in Waterford, Kilworth Camp and finally to Spike Island Prison. And three days hunger strike, they went on down there. and. and a lot of those um, prisoners were not released until um, uh, December or January of 23 because the British, the truce was in since August, but the British would not release those until they were sure that it was going to be a truce. So they were released in, a, in they went to Port Lease to Melbourne and released up there. John, really, I thought there were some great people involved in that attack and Huggiston to go back on it. Jim Rewan now, James Lahey, Pula Capel, Callan, Hadji Egan. Um, they were they were fearless men. They were on a par of with Sean Tracy, John Hogan, you know, Dan Brian, Jimmy Lacey. What they were involved in was unbelievable. Like they were in um, Gary Rickon House, Ned Elbert, Sean Quinn, James Lahey. They made some escape from that house if you read up the story of Gary Rickon House on the 12th of March 1921. <coughs> James Rohan, he was the leader of the Callum, the 7th Battalion, and he he got a terrible time. He was a great organiser, but he was, he was after Ernie O'Malley was captured in Woodstock, they had the names, the military had the names of all the locals that were involved, and, and, and Jim, Jim was actually captured and actually tortured and tortured very badly up in Dublin Castle, and and they reckon it was this um, Major William Tiny King. He was notorious as, as, a, as a torturer of people in, in, in Dublin Castle. And they reckon that it was him who um, actually tortured Jim Rehan. And Jim actually only lived until about 1924 after that. As a, and he died as a result of a brain hemorrhage. And, and as a result of those beatings he got in Dublin. So really that cannot be forgotten either. I suppose, John, there's other relations to that. There was a spy in our area during World War war of independence and actually the British military were, were notorious for um, picking on people you know that was fond of drink and this man they always give him a few shillings to to um, point out the locals and so outside the church in Hogestown <coughs> one Sunday they, they dressed him up as a woman put a shawl over him and he pointed out all the locals so that's how a lot of those were captured in that time and that man was down for assassination by the local IRA and he was being brought to a field near Newmarket back in those times and the parish priest um, housekeeper spotted the IRA bringing him up to execute him in the quarry in the field up the road and of course she called the parish priest and he he intervened and he said he'll take care of him so he sent him off to England. So at that time you had to listen to to the parish priest, you know, no matter what, even if you were an IRA gunman, you had to listen. And so that man was acting, and was, in fact he came back around the area later on in life, but still known in this area about the spy in our area, you know. A very big thank you to Willie Byrne there for telling us more about the build-up to 
and the consequences of the 1920 IRA siege of the RIC barracks in Hugginstown in South Kilkenny. As well as being a local historian, Willie is also, of course, the chairperson of Guardian on Goethe Farman Memorial Garden. And what a fantastic resource that is, an area that has been covered in previous editions of the History Show. And I do highly recommend that you check it out if you have not done so already. Time for another ad break on the programme now, but do stay with me because after that I'll be chatting once again to Sharon Kavanagh of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours about the Kittler witch trial that happened here in Kilkenny. I'll talk to you in two. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part three of tonight's KCLR History Show. Now it's time for part two of our chat with the owner of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours, Sharon Kavanagh, as she tells us a bit more about the Kittler Witch Trial and how Kilkenny became the home to the first witch burning in all of Europe. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. Sharon, continuing our Kilkenny Haunted Histories tonight, this one is truly amazing to me. The infamous Kittler Witch Trial, whereby, wait for it, the first witch burning in Europe took place here in our very own Kilkenny. I know, right? It's amazing. And it's so underspoken about, and there's so many stories about it. Like, I mean, you could ask any Kilkenny person and they'll all have their different version, and it no one knows we know the basics but we really don't know the true true inner facts of what exactly happened um and many people have their own opinions on it alice kittler we think came from a flemish family and of course after the anglo-norman invasion of 1169 we had a lot of flemish and french and uh, english people who came to kilkenny and lived here and the flemish actually flemingstown is still the area where the castle is if you look on the maps it's called flemingstown and alice kittler's family were originally flemish and they eventually her father and mother settled in kilkenny and they were money lenders so they were quite wealthy uh, you know, by by no means were they poor coming over here. They were quite, quite wealthy. She was an only child and she inherited all her father um, and parents' land and, and property. And she was quite well off. And being a woman in society in the medieval period, we're talking about the 14th century. It wouldn't have been too easy for her, in fairness to her, to have owned the business and inherited everything. And, and she married quite quickly. She married quite an influential man called William Outlaw. And William Outlaw, they lived quite a happy life. And from what we can see from, from the history books, he lived up to, they lived together in, in matrimony for, I think between 15, 20 years, they say, and eventually he died. So nothing too untoward about that. Um, she then went on to marry a man called, quite quickly, a man called Adam LeBlond. She went on again to marry another man called Richard de Val. And finally, she married John Lepore. I don't know if you can really feel the pattern here now. Each man were thought to have died mysteriously apart from her first husband. And many people in the city were quite curious of why some of these men died. Lots of people wrote about um, them having died quite suddenly of mysterious causes and 
losing their fingernails and their teeth falling out. Classic signs of arsenic poisoning, they would say. And yes, they are classic signs of arsenic poisoning. But, you know, historians um, are, you know, can exaggerate and lie too, depending on what side, you know, of politics or religion you're, you, you're supporting. So, like, this is all just written and hearsay. So, we have to kind of take it on not too seriously. However, by the time she reaches her last husband, John Lepore, she's quite a wealthy woman. And this is where I have the bit of a question mark, just personally. I could be completely wrong. But she has now inherited most of the estates of her husbands, whereby a lot of her husbands that she had married, apart from William, um, who she had had her son with, but the other men had children from previous marriages and they were completely disinherited and everything was left to her. And that would have been very unusual in an Anglo-Norman world, you know, if not today even. And another fact is we're not just talking wealth, wealth. We're talking very unusual wealth. Like we find documentation whereby she has giving a donation of 500 pounds to the King of England at the time. And she's supporting the Scottish wars that England are implementing onto Scotland um, in the 13 and 1400s. Um, it's sometimes referred to as the War of Scottish Independence. And she donates money of 500 pounds at the time. That's the equivalent today. I was looking it up there today, about half a million, just under half a million pounds. That's a hell of a lot of money to donate. And she does that. And by the time she reaches her last marriage to John the Poor, before he dies, he has a couple of daughters and he makes it clear to them that he's very, very fearful and he really thinks that Alice is poisoning him. When he does eventually die, um, the local people now are quite livid about the whole thing. They're quite suspicious. Now, of course, there is the aspect that her being a woman, being a quite a wealthy woman as that, she people would have been quite envious to her. Also as well, they would have probably owed her a lot of money. So we have to take that into account. However, eventually the local people, they head on down to the local bishop down in Canisys Cathedral. And his name was Bishop Ledred. Some people call him Bishop Deledred, the French element. In actual fact, he was from Wales. And they think his name was Bishop Letterhead. And um, But the French colony of, of Kilkenny at the time, you know, was very much the thing to have a French name. And he is now the bishop in the 1300s of Canisys Cathedral. He just so happens to be quite a learned man on the word heresy and witchcraft. He had lived in Avignon in France in 1307. He had watched as, as a young friar, he had watched the downfall of the Knights Templars in 1307. They were accused of heresy, whereby they were killed. A lot of them, a lot of them escaped in France in the papal capital. Um, but some of them did meet their end and were burnt or hung. Um, however, it was quite handy because all their money went to the church and the church thereafter were taxed by the royals. So everyone was on a win-win situation by the new heresy acts of the 1300s in Avignon in France. And he's now, this bishop who has seen all of this, he's residing down in Canisys Cathedral. He's the famous bishop, by the way, if anyone's listening there, um, that wrote the Red Book of Austria. He was quite a learned man. He brings the case against Alice, a witchcraft uh, heresy case, more to the point, against Alice, and he takes it on up to Dublin Castle um, in front of the Magistrate of Ireland and the Archbishop of Dublin, two of the most prominent people people um, in Ireland at the time. And of course, there's, the court case has been recorded in three languages, which he insisted uh, upon them being recorded in Latin, French and English. 
and you can read them if you can work out the, the, the ancient language, the, the old English. It's quite interesting. It's, um, you know, it kind of gives you an eye opener of what was going on and how people reacted to certain witchcraft and heresy activities within the city and within the world. She's accused and he wins flawlessly. He brings her um, down to Kilkenny Castle, it is said. This is what is said. Other people will say, no, she was up in Dublin. And he eventually invites every dignitary to come and watch a witch burning in the city. Many historians argue over this. Many believe she was burned down by uh, where Dunn's stores is down there now down in Karen Street. That would have been by the meadow. And um, she was burned down by the, 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 the stake was um, down by the meadow. Um, however, you know, we don't know for sure, as I say, this is just all speculation. And we're just picking pieces of different stories together to try and ascertain what exactly happened. So this is not, I'm not standing by every single word, but we do believe that it was down by the meadow, that a stake was erected by the local people. There was mass hysteria in the city of Kilkenny. People were donating their old furniture, they were donating their wood, and they were building a stake down by Karen Street. There was someone going to be burnt there, who was it going to be Alice? He brings her to the castle, he invites everyone to come. Days later, he goes to the castle and she's gone. She has vanished off the face of the earth. Never found again. There is no evidence, no written proof that she ever went anywhere again or lived anywhere again. Many people say she went to England, she went back to, to Belgium. No one knows. What we have to take into consideration is most people didn't have pictures or paintings of themselves. So yeah, most medieval people didn't move outside of where they lived at a six mile radius. So like she could have very well have moved up to the north of Ireland or down to Cork and no one may have known uh, who she was or whoever she was. But she definitely got away. And the bishop has now has been written, beaten the soldiers up at the castle within an inch of their lives. And he comes down to announce it to the whole audience of the city and they're absolutely livid. They want to win burning and he knows this. He heads on down to pick up Alice's maid, a, a young Flemish girl called Petronella de Mead. He whips her and beats her into submission and she signs, signs a confession that she too was a witch with Alice. He now has someone to display and burn in the city. He drags her along the Kieran Street, it has been said. Many people say the Tulsa. I don't know about the Tulsa. The Tulsa wasn't built back then, and I don't know if you'd be burning anyone near your good Tulsa or any near building. The meadow makes more sense. It was near her church where her family were buried, we think, in St. Mary's Church, we now know as the Medieval Mile Museum. And so they brought her down there and they set poor old Petronella alight. You know, they say, you know, that the Archbishop of Dublin was absolutely furious by this. and. He himself stopped any further witch burnings. And it has been believed that Ladred had many other people arrested who he reckoned were was helping Alice with her witchcraft throughout the years she was living um, in Kilkenny. It's an interesting story. Many places claim to possess the ghost of Alice um, in Canis's Cathedral, people say. People hang on to the story in Kittler's Inn that, that she lived there. It's a fascinating story. Um, her tavern is said to have been Hitler's in and, and the downstairs part, the ground floor part of the old tavern down there. We don't know for sure, um, but it's a really, really interesting story and I love it. And it's something I've grown up with, uh, been terrified more so as a young child um, and really loving it as an, uh, as an adult. It's a great story. It shows you many different aspects of how women were treated, uh, whether it be true or not, um, and how you could easily get rid of someone if you wanted to.
Sharon, I'm sure the listeners will agree that this has been a most fascinating insight into some of the most infamous yet terrifying haunted tales from Kilkenny's past. You and your team at Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours recount these stories regularly for the public. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work? I love history and I love archaeology. My background is archaeology um, and I'm continuously studying it. Um, I really, really love it. Um, and I love Kilkenny and why wouldn't I? It's such a beautiful old city. Um, I started up the dark tours just before COVID, actually, would you believe, a year before COVID. Um, and all of a sudden everything closed down. It was pretty devastating. I didn't know whether it was a sign not to carry on. But straight after COVID, I kicked right in with it. It's been doing really, really, really well. I'm not just saying it. I'm actually surprised how well it's doing. Um, I do nightly tours, 7 p.m. every night outside the castle gates. I have a couple of other guys who help me out. We help each other out, you know, we're sick or we places to be. Coming into this time of the year, you wouldn't be as busy, but right up to the summer, the whole way through the summer, his, the tourism in Kilkenny is actually getting longer and longer. You know, there was a time when you'd just be getting the six months out of it. Now it's just heading on, even into November, we're getting lots of bookings. And I basically just take people around. I also do private group bookings as well. So if you have a business or coming up to Christmas, you want to do something a little bit different from the usual, uh, going for a meal and whatever, you can meet before a few drinks and I can take you around the city at a fixed time and uh, agreeable to me. And I can bring you around and tell you all the haunted true stories of the city with a bit of history thrown in, which is really, really good fun and interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm on Airbnb experiences. I'm also on Viator, TripAdvisor. You can check out my my pages there and I have an Instagram page, Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours. So just check them out for bookings and prices and I'd be happy to take you around. And a big thank you once again to Sharon Kavanagh, the owner of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours there for reciting some of those very, very well-known Kilkenny haunted tales and uh, she gave you some of the information there as to how you can find out more about uh, her group but uh, perhaps uh, one of the key ways you can do so is on Instagram, uh, Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours. Time for another break now on the programme. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes' time. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLOR with John Moynihan. And thank you very much for joining me on the programme tonight. And indeed, thank you to our contributors, uh, Sharon Kavanagh, of course, of Kilkenny Haunted Dark Tours and Willie Barron, local historian, and also the owner of uh, Guardian on Goethe. Uh, just to remind you of the KCLR Daily every morning bet- between uh, 10 and 1 uh, with Brian Redmond, of course, our new flagship talk show programme here on the station. Also, guess who? If you can uh, get all of the celebrity voices correct, you could be in with a chance of winning some cash thousands of euros up for grab there across the week here on KCLR uh, between 8am and 5pm each and every day plenty of OBs coming up as well on the station um, of course tomorrow the John Keane show will be coming from Super Value in Callan and then next week the KCLR Daily with Brian will be coming from the County Carlow Chamber of Commerce so plenty of great uh, programming in store for you here on KCLR but that's just about it for this evening do stay tuned to KCLR because uh, Owen Carey's up next with Fully Loaded. Talk to you again next week. 
The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media.